everybody. Welcome back to King of the Ride podcast. I'm excited to have you back once again or here fresh for the very first time today. I am Ted King. I am your host, and we're in store for a terrific show today. We've got something of a quick intro here. Our guest is is something of an underground hero for cyclists, Jason Gay, writer for the Wall Street Journal, sports columnist, as he describes it. I prefer sports columnist plus. You see, Given the loose rein he's been given by such a thoughty publication, for example, he hosts a video podcast called The Unnamed Pod Videocast. He interviews celebrities both within and beyond the athletic arena. Or in the most recent article I read just this morning was a culinary review of a $180 steak sandwich that he had the privilege to eat. He's not purely a beat sports journalist. Jason is a very engaging writer. He's an entertainer. He's funny. He's witty. He's insightful. And if you follow him just long enough, you realize that cycling has an important place in his life. And that is why I wanted to sit down and chat with Jason, a self-described chamois sniffer. Obviously, he knows the nuances of cycling with terminology up his sleeve like that. This is definitely one of the most entertaining, most fun conversations I've been lucky enough to have here in the King of the Ride podcast. Certainly not entirely cycling related. But by all means, please stay tuned through the very end because it's in those final two minutes of a nearly hour-long conversation that we delve into the state of modern media, which I find fascinating. Why Why do I have this podcast? What's the purpose of broadcasting a message in general using social media, using contemporary written media? Jason has a lot of information to share, and I was, I was lucky enough to sit down and chat with him about that. In other news, this past weekend, I knocked out a bucket list item in the D2R2 right there in central Massachusetts, the Deerfield Dirt Road Randonnée, one of the best names for an event out there. This was a soggy, sandy, hilly, no, dare I say mountainous affair with more than 12,000 feet of climbing, but still overall absolute a blast of event. I'm told that it's nearly always stunning weather, so we actually stayed drier than it was forecasted. Really an excellent use of my Saturday. Highly recommended in that one. In a few short weeks' time, I'm excited to be heading across our our northern border up to Canada for those two world tour races, the Quebec City, I'm sorry, Grand Prix Quebec City and Grand Prix Montreal. I raced both of those four or five times, which was always a charming homecoming, getting back to the close to my hometown back here in New England. They offer European racing with an old-school European feel as they zip in and around, up and down, all throughout some very historic North American cities. I'm looking forward to catching up with some friends and former teammates, hopefully grab a conversation or two out of that. I'm definitely going to get a kick out of being on the other side of the barrier as they bang out 15 or so very, very tough circuits through those hilly cities. Lastly... If you're up for it, I ask that you please leave reviews, tell your friends, tell your family, tell anyone you think may be interested in the King of the Ride podcast. Look, I listen to a lot of podcasts myself, and I've heard this plea as well. It's not now until I'm on the other side of of the podcast creating them that I realize just how important those reviews are. So please take 30 seconds and shoot me your reviews. Also shoot me any thoughts that you have about King of the Ride podcast too. All things I am Ted King on social media. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. And now on to the show with Jason Gay. We're in a 
very new and foreign setting to the King of the Ride podcast. Uh, typically, what I like about it, you see our sound studio here is a mobile, something that looks like a mobile phone circa 1999, <laughs> and then two mics. So we have the ability to go on the road. We've done things recently where we were at a, uh, we are overlooking the Atlantic. Yeah. There were boats humming in and out. And here we are in New York City in, are we in downtown Manhattan? Midtown. Midtown. Yeah. Okay. And we're in an actual sound studio. Yeah. So <laughs> when people are, are listening along here today and they're like, wow, this, the acoustics are out of this world. <laughs> and not only that, but we're about, as the, as the stone throws, we're about 20 yards from a live country concert. Yeah. There's some country and Western concert on the corner of uh, 48th and 6th Avenue. And yeah, you were in the belly of the beast, Ted. Uh, how are you holding up here in the middle of New York City? Uh, so far, so good. Now, I'll point <laughs> out, I got up and I gave myself about a two-hour buffer to get down here. Um, I've seen more of these electric hoverboards yeah. that don't actually hover than yeah. I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Seen a couple double-decker bikes already. I nearly got hit by one. <laughs> I've seen a car fire, true story, Nice. and a live concert. And did you ride or did you take the bu- uh, subway? I took the subway. Okay. Um, I was invited on a couple 6.15 a.m. rides today. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. on the tail end of the Cannondale North American sales meeting just down the road. Okay. Um, so my legs are a little bit... They were, they were ready for a subway ride. <laughs> um, but I made it. I was very proud of that. I'm curious to see uh, what you think when you get a chance to ride around this fine city. New York City... Uh, very, very underrated as a cycling city. So I, I hope you get a chance at some point to do it. Well, yeah, we nearly got out for a ride. Um, I would like to still get out for a ride with you Yeah. at some point. Show me around. Um, coincidentally, I'm visiting my brother. He's up in uh, Washington Heights, so way up on the yeah. northwest side of Manhattan yeah. for you non-city slickers like yeah. myself. Yeah. And he's he has this beautiful view in his apartment because he's on the 19th floor overlooking the GW Bridge. Right. Which... Oddly enough, I've ridden in New York City three times and two times have been up there across the GW. Sure, of course. Right on back. Yeah. What about you? Where's your, where do you go ride bikes? Well, I, mean, I live in Brooklyn, so the standard lap is uh, Prospect Park, which is, you know, a quick uh, 3.1 mile loop, I believe. Uh, and, uh, yeah, to get out of town, you got to go right up the west side of Manhattan and, uh, and then over the GW onto River Road or 9W, depending on your choice. And then you can go really in a whole bunch of directions, and there's great riding. Um, and I, I'm always just shocked. You know, I've been doing it for a number of years. I'm no good at it, but <laughs> I'm just shocked by how many more people you see out. I just did the Nyack 9W ride a couple of Sundays ago, and it had been a while since I had done that, and it felt like a parade. And there was no sort of event. There was no Grand Fondo happening or anything <laughs> like that, but there were just a spectacular number of bikes on the road, and it made me happy. That's a good thing. It does it does make you feel good. Like the critical mass, even if you're on like a bike path and you're completely swarmed with cyclists, I just feel good about it. I, I'm a big believer in safety and numbers too. I mean, for two reasons. One is that, you know, you're literally, you know, protected by a group sometimes, but also that you just condition drivers to expect bikes. You know, if they know that there are going to be bikes out there, they're going to be looking for them. And we're in an era where... There are more distractions than ever for drivers, and it terrifies the hell out of me. And we all know people who have been, you know, victimized by that. So, anything that gets people in the mind state that they got to look out for bikes, I'm in favor of. Truth, couldn't Truth. agree more. Yeah. Now, having done this 
wonderful bike introduction. <laughs> I could um, I could introduce you, but I figure there's no better person to introduce oneself than oneself. So um, for our listening audience, you know, we're often, in, often talking to bike racers, sure. race promoters. Legit people. Um, cycling advocates. Yeah. Um, I think I was describing you this morning to a friend and I said, I think you're something of a celebrity to the cycling world. No. In a foreign in a in a foreign sense, mm. but you are. People know you. People who ride bikes know you. Jason, give me a, a I think thousand word, word or less I think, profile. Uh, I think chamois sniffer is the, oh, uh, nice. is, the is the proper nice. term. You know, I'm just a fanboy. <laughs> Uh, unabashedly, um, you know, I, uh, I love the sport. I love cycling in every way, shape and form, you know, getting to work, leaving work, um, getting anywhere. Just, you know, I just love it as a discipline. And, uh, I work at the wall street journal and I've had the good fortune of having bosses who either weren't paying any attention or (laughs) shared with me this interest in cycling as a sport and have allowed me. Uh, on occasion to drift into this, uh, you know, interest that I have. And it's given me this great opportunity to meet people such as yourself and, you know, all over the sport, you know, both uh, domestically, internationally, and write about things that I guess that aren't typically covered in mainstream press. And one thing that I get a huge kick out of is just the response from the cycling community. I mean, people who you know, love it, feel the same way that I do, you know, care about it. You know, we could go on and on about the imperfections of it and it's certainly not perfect by any stretch, but, you know, just, just have a passion for it. And, uh, the stories do well, you know, I know we're not supposed to talk about like clickbait and like who reads what and like, (laughs) well, how many millions of people are reading this or that, but I'll tell you something. If you write an article about the New York Yankees for a newspaper, you got a lot of competition. Okay. Mm. You have like 400 other newspapers who are writing about Yankees or baseball or something like that. There are a lot of people who are coming for that same chunk of the pie. You write about Perry Roubaix in a mainstream newspaper. <laughs> you kind of have that lane all to yourself, at yep. least in America. And, uh, you know, away from the trade publications, which do a great job, of course. But for just a regular newspaper. Yeah. So like that has been a nice little bread and butter for us. You know, we had four people at one point at the Tour de France this year, which was kind of hilarious. The Wall Street Journal. Four, from four, the journal. four journal people actually at some of the Alpine stages in, <laughs> in, in week two. So yeah, um, you know, one of these days, someone in charge is going to look around and be like, hey, what's the deal with all this bike racing stuff? But uh, so far, we're successfully running this scam. Excellent. Well, we'll keep it uh, covert here, King of the Ride. <laughs> um, what is your... Formal job title. Having done due diligence, you think I would have come up with yeah, that? Yeah, no. I read your book, but I didn't. Sports read that. columnist, I think, is the best way to put it. You okay, know, not a legit reporter, just a goofball opinion writer. So um, I think that's the most honest way to put it. How deep is the? sports department at the WSJ. We're lean and mean. We're about 10 people, including a couple editors. Um, and, uh, you know, people have their strong suits. We've, you know, person who specializes in NBA basketball, person who does NFL, person who does college sports. Um, yeah, it bounces around. Um, and we all kind of like pitch in on occasion when things, you know, for big stuff like the Olympics or something like that. And you still, you still have the ability to interview. So across sports, yeah. for example, I want to get to this later. You talked to this guy named LeBron James not yeah. too long ago. Yeah. Um, you do travel to the Olympics, to Super Bowls, to Tour de France. Yeah. Um, 
you're, uh, I guess the question is, I mean, as you say, you're like, you are more of an opinion writer or do you get the broad spectrum of, hey, write whatever you want to write on the spectrum? I, of I mean, it's a job, you know, that kind of is what you put into it, right? Um, it doesn't have like strict boundaries on it. And I've had really good editors who have been really encouraging and yada, yada. I mean, I just feel like, you know, when it's good, it's good when it's bad. It's entirely on me. Um, uh. And uh, and yeah, we have the you know um, sports. I feel like you know it gets described in newspaper business as sort of like the toy shop, and that's really true. You know, you look out on this newsroom over here, and I have colleagues who are doing very serious work every single day, covering everything from markets to world affairs to everything that's happening in Washington and so on. And you know, it's we're, all a puppet show. Sorry, and so that's all puppet show. Yeah, sports is where it's at. <laughs> but the you know, but 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 sports is like you know, it is it is sort of a racket because, um, you know, I think someone said once it's like stakes without consequences. People care about it, right? You know, but it's not going to like ruin your life if you know your high school or your college football team loses. Uh, and so you get an engaged audience already. You know, it's hard to make people care about something that's you know obscure, arcane, and like finance maybe, but it's very easy to get people to get excited about. Something in sports, so again, huge racket. Uh, very, very uh, lucky to be in it. Truth, yeah, I think in your book you'll probably remember how you described it even better than I. But you mentioned that sports are this thing that are are so fun and meant to be trivial that the only reason, uh, the only time you should start to care is when you're so good that you should be paid millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, um, yeah, it is a it is a funny thing. It's our hobby. Well, so. you know this, you know. Being a pro cyclist, making millions and millions of dollars. Oh my gosh, yeah. greatest paycheck I ever pulled. Um, and you had some great parallels there. I mean, when it's good, it's great. And when it's bad, yeah, it's on you. A lot of the ways you just described it is is the life of a professional cyclist. And I mm -hmm. think from the outside, you know, when I know about writing for the Wall Street Journal is is very little, but it looks like a decent gig. I mean, your position, you know, like yeah, I said, you yeah, get sent no. all over the world. So it, it is. How? It, it is. Um, it is a good gig and we can eat what we want. So it's a little different in that regard. <laughs> You've um, never had somebody come in and give you a, a body fat percentage <laughs> pinch test. Oh God, they would be here all day. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, to turn it back on you, one thing that I do enjoy about um, writing about cycling is that you know, cyclists, men and women who do it professionally, um, it's a life of sacrifice. In many cases, they've put a lot of their sort of, you know, personal life on hold. They have given themselves over to the sport, but they are also citizens of the world. They can usually speak multiple languages. They've lived in foreign countries. They know how to scramble through airports. They're real ninjas of like, you know, a humble kind of athletic existence that, you know, doesn't really exist in major professional sports in America anymore. You know, people talk about, oh, well, we feel disconnected from athletes now because they're making 300, 400 million dollar just, you know, contracts and so on. Well, that's not happening in cycling. There are a few no, people at the tippity top who are, you know, making seven figures, but by and large, it's not that kind of world. You don't do it for the money. You do it for because you love it and you feel, you know, why well, should I, 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 here I am telling a pro cyclist why you do it. But, you <laughs> know, I just money. find there's a, there's, there are threads to these athletes who do it, men and women, um, that, uh, you know, are sort of philosophical, spiritual, and not, you know, as strongly professional as it or mercenary type as it might be in other sports. I would concur. Um, <laughs> yes. It's I know it's a broader conversation than that. It's not, you know, as simplistic as that. But you're, you're exactly spot on. Uh, I like how, you know, you mentioned that 
you're an airport ninja, so to speak. <laughs> you can, you can, I would describe us as like semi-professional, uh, EMTs. Yes, we are yes. good at, at translating finances. We're good at translating languages. We're good at hustling through airports or we're yep. good at, you know, making our way through customs, which when you're a 21, 22 year old kid and you're learning these things, it seems a little bit trivial until you see your, your, your friends who, you know, are the same age and, and you start traveling with them in world trips and yeah, there's a lot of worldly culture that you gain being a professional cyclist. You're very skilled at scamming away from bike fees, I assume. I think the airlines somehow caught wind of it because oh, it really? used to be a, a pretty frequent victory to be able to fly with your bike and yeah, not get hit with yeah. what used to be $50 fees. Right. Now it's 200 Now it's 200 250 minimum 150 except for occasional airlines. Um, Man... I want to call out United because remember, if you were a member of USA Cycling, they would give you vouchers and you could fly on United with a free bicycle. And it was a great, like every cyclist I knew would yeah, fly United. Yeah. Now they've turned around and been like, ah, we've, we've got them hooked because they've made their, <laughs> their basic level. Uh, and now they're, what did you, what would you say it was? Did you ever get confronted and say it was like a yoga table or exercise equipment? I would often do exercise equipment. I'm not, yeah. A believer in straight up lying. You can't do the lie. You can't say drum set. No. Um, <laughs> exercise equipment was typical. Ex, uh, exposition material because, yeah. you know, I'm sort of on exposition. Yeah. Um, the number of times you get away with it is so, so few and far between. Well, it's such a but scam you, when you consider like the, the jerks here are golfers and skiers and, 100%. and surfboarders. Why are those guys not getting whacked? It's What's nuts, man. It's nuts. Especially this day and age when the bike boxes are so darn small. <laughs> anyway, you're completely right. Okay. You had this wonderful airline idea in your book, which let's just give it a shout out. Little <laughs> Victories, Perfect Rules for Imperfect Living. Um, your airline idea was called Air Uptight and Organized. Yeah. And I think that anybody who travels would be an immediate convert. There are people. Would you want to be a frequent flyer on Air Uptight? 100%. Yeah. On and off the plane in three minutes? Yeah. I mean, there would be a packing test. So what it would be, it would be like there would be like a dummy airplane somewhere that you would go, like almost in a way you get to driver's ed test um and you would show that you had the ability to you know pack put your uh you know your bag in the overhead compartment close the overhead compartment get into your seat you know <laughs> but buckle up within three minutes or less and also very important because i've seen a diminishment of these skills you're also able to exit the plane uh yes. you know efficiently uh you know it's staggering now how many uh, minutes have been added to the flying experience just watching other people try to stuff their shit into like the compartment or pull it out. I, like I really feel like like the, the the loading up has been a problem for several years. Uh, I feel like the the exiting of the plane has gotten worse and worse because because the one the, the the one culprit the biggest culprit I feel is the person who is like eighteen rows back and tries to make a run for it like mm -hmm. right up the front mm -hmm. you know they just go right shooting down the middle of the plane as the plane is like still taxiing because they're you know <laughs> trying to make a connection and I feel for them because this is the fall of the airlines because they're probably behind for their connection and so on but it's just madness. Okay, I'm going to make a pretty stretch of a comparison. You know, if you're driving in Europe, primarily in Italy, yeah, the lanes are a suggestion, the dotted lanes. And yeah. I, I believe in that. It's like if you have a giant S-bend and there's no car coming at you, yeah. straight line it. Yeah. Don't do it dangerously. Don't weave in the other lane, but, you know, go do your thing. Can I ask you a question to digress for, for a second about roads in Italy? Certainly. When you trained in Europe, 
Um, how much of the road will you take? I mean, you know, obviously you're taking chances, you know, <laughs> in races and so on. Uh, but it's it's difficult to prepare for taking the whole road when you're training because obviously there are cars out on it. And how do you do that? Like, what is a smart idea? What's the wise man's approach? Well, I'm a firm believer in being a good steward of bicycles on the road. Yeah. So staying to the right, the general rules of the road certainly apply and it's funny because if you put a group of cyclists any yeah. sort of pro group ride sorry right. a group of professional cyclists right. out on the road the rules of the road will apply you'll always ride two abreast you won't get near the middle of the road right you ride basically as far right as you can right you don't yell everybody likes to yell right. car up rock <laughs> you point at stuff right um so it's safety you're cruising down the road there are occasional occasions, like I was saying about the lanes, you're going to, you're going to straight line a, rather than taking an S bend right. way to the right, as long as there's a car near, uh, as long as there's no car nearby. Yeah. We are hyper aware of cars as I think all cyclists should be. And then make that leap into the, into an actual bike race because you're following the wheel in front of you, the rider in front of you, the, the dude at the front of the Peloton, who oftentimes was me when I was hard at work is following the moto. Yeah. And so, Yeah. Shortest distance between two points, straight line. But, um, but and then but I call it. it but does it, but does it make? But my question was, <clears> does it make training hard? Because like you know, in a race, you're able to take the whole road, so you're able to kind of like. Nah. Know, nah. No, and then I call it suspension of disbelief. Like, say you're bombing down some alpine descent, and you have a blind corner. Yeah. Maybe it's a blind left-hand corner, yeah. so like you would be coming into oncoming traffic. You you rely on the disbelief that there's no car, there's no dog, there's no right. rock. You're not going to get a flat. Right. It's much more exhilarating than it is terrifying. So That's you go with it. Do you ever say to yourself, I sure hope that Moto knows what yes, they're doing? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh you watched Philippe Gilbert eat it. Yeah. Uh he's prolific bike rider. Yeah. Great talent. Uh same sort of thing. He's following that moto, he's reading that moto, he's reading yeah. that moto, and then that's the what, probably twenty five thousandth time he's <laughs> taken a similar corner <laughs> and he ate it. Right. Um so yeah, you just you go with it. I think it's probably a similar question. I, I was lucky enough to speak with speak with Scott Speed, okay, professional car racer of yeah. all disciplines. Yeah, I didn't ask him about it, but I've talked to other car racers about it. Like as soon as they get behind the wheel and they're driving on the highway, they're not doing 120 miles an hour. You just you follow the rules of the road until it's time to go to work, and then you let it rip. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Digression complete. I, I still <laughs> like this. Have you noticed when you're in Europe? And you're taxiing, Europeans yeah. stand up. They go to the bathroom, they That's get their true. they get their bags. Nobody cares. Whereas yeah. in America, if you even consider unbuckling your seatbelt while taxiing, yeah. there's a stern steward or stewardess who's telling you to don't even think about it. <laughs> I noticed in Europe one thing that they started to uh patrol um they patrol the cell phone a lot more carefully than they do in the U.S. I don't know why that is. The cell phone on airplane? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Like making sure that it's off or an airplane mode. Whereas in the U.S., I feel like everyone's just like going to town on their phones no yeah. matter what. You know, it's just a recommendation. I feel like that that's no a follows. recent thing too in the States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there was one time that you could do all sorts of dangerous things from behind your cell phone while in seat 13B. We, we sound like real jackasses talking about flying in Europe, but let's <laughs> emphasize that we're talking about EasyJet and Ryanair. Yeah. And oh, like, absolutely. You know, not uh, 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 Gulf Streams. Oh, my goodness. Bing, bong, bing. Would you like to buy a scratch ticket from Ryanair? <laughs> so, okay, let's talk about bikes and famous people. Yeah. You You get to interview all sorts of fascinating folks. In fact, if my memory serves me correctly, having watched the 
video podcast <laughs> from this room. Emma Stone has sat in the seat. Emma Stone has sat exactly where you have sat, Ted. Oh my yeah. gosh, this Which is pretty cool. That she's now the second most uh, famous person to sit in that seat. Yeah. Oh, that is. So where did where does Dana White fit in of the UFC <laughs> fame? Is he third or second? Yeah, yeah. You know, like you know, UFC is very very fringe sport compared to you know pro cycling. So you've you've also spoken not in this seat. You've spoken to. Is it Sir Robin Williams? You've spoken to Robin Williams. Yeah, yeah. That was a that was a, a a long time ago. You know, I I interviewed him about some comedy special that he was doing, and I knew he was a cyclist, and I tried to get him to go for a bike ride with me for a long, long time. I knew he was riding in Central Park. He was, had been doing a play, and he was going and doing laps in Central Park, and a lot of friends of mine had seen him, and you know, I just wanted to go for a ride and so I had asked his you know his people several times for that and then the opportunity came up to talk to him about another project and I leapt at it with the ulterior motive of you know talking to him about cycling and it was like it was an interesting thing as it happens a lot with you know people who are famous for other reasons but love cycling it's like flipping a switch you know they're so programmed to talk about their live as a comic or as an athlete and another sport or so on and no one really ever asks them about this and as you know from living this life you know cycling is not something that people tend to be like one foot in you know they are deep deep beyond and Robin was the definition of that. It was like he just, you know, his warmth level, you know, rose. I don't want to say he got more serious, but he just was, there was a, you know, very clear passion for it. And, you know, as I learned in later, you know, interviews for, with people in the Bay Area, I mean, his, both his cycling habit, but his uh, cycling purchasing were legendary. <laughs> yes. Someone told me a great story about him, um, about how, he was somebody was launching a bike shop. I want to say Sausalito or somewhere in there, and probably above category. Maybe it was above category, was and those guys. There. Yeah, but they, <laughs> but they, the recommendation was: listen, if you get a when you when you open your shop, put a really expensive fifty four in the window, and Robin will come by and buy it. <laughs> and sure as shit, that happened within a few weeks of opening. Um, but he bought from everybody in the, in the area, as far as I know. And then, you know, his loss was such a tragedy. And then we did a story, I guess about a year and a half after he, um, passed away about his, the auctioning of his bike collection, right. which was an incredible opportunity. Um, and such a great idea. The family decided he had an inventory of something like 88 bikes, you know, when all was said and done and that is wild. 88 and like spread across several garages and, you know, container ships and so on. And <laughs> they ended up raising, I want to say close to $650,000 on these bikes. And they were everything from like, you know, Team Sky Pinarellos to like Schwinn Stingrays. And it was just such a wild, he had a soft ride, like yep, all this great yep, stuff. Yep, yep. And, and um, yeah, he was the real deal with that stuff. That was, it was really cool to see that auction go out. Um, yeah, he, he, everybody in the Bay Area still talks about him, seeing him on rides, going on rides. Um, there's yes, a, his there, collection was prolific. There's a clip on the internet, and and if you can, if you type in his name and you type in BMC Racing, you can find it. There's this great clip of him, and I think it's Torre, California, somewhere in Northern California, and you probably know who the BMC, you know, DS or whoever it is he's talking to, and he's just like looking at the bikes, and there's a few fans standing around, and he's just asking about like electronic shifting, and just really geeking out to the equipment, and someone asks him for an autograph in Spanish and he signs it and says something. I mean, you get to see the sort of the, the full human. And that's one of the things that I really do like about, you know, talking to people about bikes and maybe going for a ride with them is that 
you know, it just, it puts people in a mind state and a relaxation that, you know, another topic might not, and you get more of the real person. And so if you look at that clip, I swear to you, it's like a 45 minute long clip. There's more about Robin Williams' character in that than any sort of like, you know, comedic interview he's ever done. hundred um, percent. And I think that's exactly what you talked about when you, when you have that interview with him that, that first time. I mean, you can talk all day about comedy and his acting and his words, you get his inspiration and so on and so forth, but it opens up a a very humanizing side when you start talking about bikes. And that's, now, now uh, if you're a, a pro rider, is it the opposite? Like, you know, you must have 50,000 people when you were riding out in your, you know, Cannondale kit and someone comes up and says, hey, what are your watts and what are your butt? Would you rather talk about anything but? Is that where, like, the maple syrup came from? Just, like, to change yeah, the subject? Yeah, talk about anything but bikes? <laughs> um, oh, man. I have a hard time answering that because there are plenty of times that I do like talking about I can nerd out on bikes as, as well as anybody. Yeah. Um, so there's a time and a place for it. If you're deep into a race, you don't want to, you know, be accosted by a fan to say, hey, what was your gear ratio going up uh, the Zolkalon there? <laughs> but uh, this day and age, I spent a lot of time on group rides, leading group rides, going out and about and interacting yeah. with folks. And you know what? I actually love that stuff now. So... Do you think people are too wanked out about like um, equipment and data now, or do you think the pendulum is starting to swing back and people are starting to ride for riding's sake? I mean, what do you feel? Where's that going? Uh, I'll turn the tables back on you. Do you ride? Do you ride gravel yet? I have not. I mean, I you know, I've ridden gravel and stretches of you know road riding, but not a real true right. gravel ride at all. Accidental rides through yeah. Brooklyn when they've ripped up the pavement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that's a terrific question. I think gravel points directly at this sort of the side of cycling um where you know i, I call it franken bikes you know franken bikes 15 yeah. years ago those were gravel bikes yeah. and now we're doing this thing that the whole industry is behind it so i think it's a little bit of a uh, a venn diagram crossover there it's like it's the fun lifestyle side of cycling with the actual support of the industry to provide yeah. the bikes and the equipment and the, the gear ratios and the tires to make it more accommodating make it more fun it does seem like that's where the momentum in the industry is right now, and even in the sport, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the the competitive community. I mean, like, I'm just shocked at the growth of like Dirty Kanza and like just uh, you ever read that? Just kidding. <laughs> Uh, I know you want it, um, but I mean, Which it's, it's, uh, it's, am <laughs> it's amazing, like just how that has grown and the enthusiasm for it. And you see it like, you know, pushing up to the professional ranks totally. where I've heard about like pro tour teams, like being like, we got to put some people on these things because they're getting a lot of visibility and our sponsors want it. And the trickle up, see like yesterday's first stage of Colorado Classic. Yeah. They started on dirt. Yeah. They were racing on dirt. Uh, the Giro is racing on dirt. There's there's all sorts of races in uh, in the Netherlands now that are rather than cobbled sections, they're doing gravel sections. Now, let me ask you. I knew that you, you knew you were going to get into this. Where I was going to just turn the tables on you. Okay, go. Part of me worries, however. I think gravel racing is great, and Dirty Cans is not what I'm talking about here. But when you have something like that tour stage. Um, on the cobbles this year mm -hmm. where there was big carnage. And I think Richie Port went down, Yaron went down. I mean, I, man, I, I anticipated Richie having a bad time on that stage. He crashed before the cobbles. Oh, that's right. That's anyway. Right. In fairness to him, fairness to the, or, and it's not ASO, a, it's it was not before a diss the cobbles. on Richie because I, he was my pick to win the whole darn tour. But, <laughs> but, but when I see like a, a stage like this, you know, all the fans, you know, including myself get really excited about it. It's like, you know, there's going to be, you know, selections, there's going to be carnage, da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. But is it like, 
kind of like disingenuous for the sport to basically put together courses where they base where they think they might knock some people out and like you know it's an interesting balance like for something like nascar like well that is very much like part of like the nascar formula they don't want it to be just like you know they want some rubbing in the racing you know mm-hmm. and and uh but in the you know obviously the uh, margins are a lot different in, in cycling and much more dangerous in that regard uh, is there something disingenuous about a stage like that Hey, hey, hey. Hot takes. It's uh, I I liked it because um, I'll make a comparison to the Giro. I raced the twenty, I raced two thousand nine, two thousand ten Giro. I forget which one it was, but we raced a whole bunch of very, very wet Strade Bianchi, the yeah. the white roads, yeah. and and uh, Vincenzo Nibali ended up. He didn't win the stage, but he was in the jersey and he rode like a giant. I mean, the guy has incredibly dexterous bike handling skills. Similar story to uh, Cadell Evans, former professional mountain biker, great skills, even though he broke his collarbone like 17 times a year. (laughs) So there, what I like about it is it, it, it brings an already incredibly elite field of professional cyclists. And then you get to see the cream of the crop who are the best of the best. Um, and it really, this field did really get down to some like serious all rounders. If I, you know, it didn't like, yeah. Who won the stage? Uh, Degen Oh, Deccan Cole, that's right. With, yep, uh, yeah. Van Avermaet there. Peter was chomping at the heels. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, uh, Garrett Thomas, he's he's done really well in the classics. And Froome, who couldn't ride a bike terribly well three years ago, has, has become an exceptional bike racer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it, it ended up taking out a very random selection. Uh, Groovenwagen, Dylan Groovenwagen. I, yeah. I, I don't speak yeah. Dutch. Um, <laughs> you know, he's a terrific sprinter. He he destroyed his bike. He broke his bike into two pieces and it has nothing to do with his biking. And he goes, so man, I don't know. Yeah. It's most certainly a, a gladiator approach. They're throwing yeah. them to the lions and saying, Hey, let's see how it all lands. Um, and I don't know what the solution is because I think there's something cool about that. Also, I think there's something cool about it's a spectacle. It was awesome sure. to watch. And, and when you saw the faces of the guys rolling in and it looking like, you know, the Roubaix velodrome, you know, it's hard not to think like, man, we should do this every year. It's mm-hmm. awesome. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's not without consequences. What I found cool, I checked in with uh, Lawrence Tendam yeah. and uh, Ian Boswell afterwards, yeah. and those guys are super domestiques in the mountains. Yeah. They each weigh yeah. 75 pounds. Yeah. I thought, checking in post facto, they were going to be the kind of folks who were like, that was awful. I don't yeah. ever want to do that again. That's yeah. terrible. It shouldn't be in the sport. They both had a good time. And I saw, <laughs> I saw LTD on TV on the side of the road two or three times, bike change, whatever it was. <laughs> So I think if your stakes weren't high, if you were a domestique and you were allowed to lose a lot of time, like put in your work and then get dropped, yeah, that's fine. I yeah. I, I would have loved to see TJ do well there and yeah, like, sure. you know take the reins of BMC. Yeah, eh, Rigo had a tough race. Yeah, a tough race. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know the solution. I mean, you're right. The the sport of cycling is looking for looking for ways to keep us entertained, and that was that was certainly entertaining. Yeah. Uh, we see maybe uh. Maybe jumps, you know, like <laughs> at a mountain bike stage next year, mandatory cyclocross. Barriers. I mean, yeah, maybe there are more softer ways to transition, more exciting aspects. Like, yeah, literally at a gravel stage. Who knows? We'll see. Uh, so you were at the Tour de France. Yeah. Uh, how much time do you spend over there? I went to four stages, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, All alpine? Yes. We went to that. So that alpine leg from Annecy. Um, and uh, yeah. I'm laughing because I... I saw a clip of Team Wall Street Journal landing in uh, landing in France, getting ready to cover the race, and 
the only thing I saw was a car stuck. Yeah, no, we got stuck. I mean, it is really sort of like you go to the Super Bowl, Ted. And the the NFL holds your hand like you are a one year old and like says, "Here's the practice and here's the buffet and here's your hotel," whereas like you cover the Tour de France, it's like everybody for themselves and like the teams in some cases aren't much better off. You know, there's a lot of scrambling around there too, um, but that's part of the fun of it. And especially when you you know include like you know serious <laughs> winding roads and 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 traffic jams of campers that are conked out on the sides of you know alpine passes mm-hmm. um it's a whole fun dynamic but i loved it i love it was like it feels a long time ago and it had been a while since i had been that part of the tour but it's just the best and like it's such a funny thing cuz you explain it to people what it is uh and it doesn't sound like much. It's like, oh, you wait, and then they go by, and then they're all past you in 20 minutes, probably. Yeah. Um, and yet, I do believe the Tour de France, we were having an argument about this afterwards, is a bucket list event. If you are a sports person, if you're the person who was like, I got to go to the Masters golf, I got to go to a Super Bowl, I got to go to a college football game at Alabama, I think a Tour de France is definitely like a, a bucket list thing, and I think you should go to a mountain stage. Um you know, I'm also a big fan of Champs Elysees. I think that like that gets a bad rap, but that is a really cool like last you know thing to watch because if you see everybody go by a million times and you know everyone's in a good mood. And I don't know, I I I've, it's it's not the kind of event where it's like you get watch watch five hours of Roger Federer playing. You know, it's a totally different thing. But mm-hmm. from a party standpoint, from a beauty standpoint, from an enthusiasm, I mean, just there's nothing like it. Couldn't agree more. Uh- I think it's that same gladiator approach that they take to the cyclists, whether we're in races or staying at these Campanile hotels that are yeah. basically a, a dingy best Western here in the States <laughs> over in Europe. So it's nice to hear they're treating the, the, the media and the journalists. Are, the same are way. you two in the room or do you get to a point where you have so much seniority that you're one in the room? Is like Froome got a roommate? Froome's got a room to himself. Okay. Uh, team captain. And, and, you know, that was typical with teams of nine. So you double right. up, double up, double up. Um, but yes, by and large, you have a room. You have a roommate, and then these hotel rooms are so small. You yeah. are literally removing the furniture. <laughs> like you're, you're laughing because you know it. Yeah, truth. Well, because also like a lot of the Alpine um, accommodations, uh, you're staying in not the uh, places where people stay when they ski. You're staying in the place where the people who serve yeah. the people who are the, skiing. the foreign staff members exactly. stay exactly. Exactly. Um, you mentioned Roger Federer. Yeah, this is what's called the transition. In okay, journalism. great. Okay. Yeah, um, great. In your book, you talk about the the humility of Federer. He might, you know, he's absolutely top of the game. He might suffer a loss, and he's very warm and diplomatic and sort of uh, almost taking a third-person approach saying, you know, yes, maybe I'm a little bit upset that I lost, but I just lost in the semis at, at Wimbledon. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm psyched to be here. This is such a great event, yada, 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 his positivity. Contrast that to somebody like Peter Sagan, who I think... Here's my two cents. You know that he's he's treated as something of an enigma with his interviews. Yeah, I think there is something to be said about his uh, 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 language barrier. Sure, but I think he has that same perspective. He's yeah. like, you know what? Yeah, I lost. I got second in Perry Roubaix, but I lost by two inches, <laughs> and it's kind yeah. of arbitrary. So, what do you think? What do you take I, of the second? That's guy? a really good comparison. And you know, in Federer's case, one thing someone said to me a long time ago was one of the big moments in Federer's life because you can go back and look on YouTube and find clips of 19-year-old Federer breaking rackets, screaming F-bombs, and like being a total brat. Didn't know that. And, and uh, 
he turned it around and and he's obviously known as now one of the most like courteous and civil players in any sport and uh, doesn't do any of that kind of stuff usually. Um, and someone said to me, one of the things that happened for him is that he learned how to lose, hmm. which is a really weird thing to say about somebody who's won 20 grand slams uh, and is, you know, possibly the greatest tennis player of all time. But he does sort of, have the ability to lose, process it, put it in the rear view and not let it affect him going forward. And I think that's like in his case, why he went through that really bleak stretch where he didn't win a major for about four years and then came back and he's won three in the last year and a half. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not letting that get to him was a huge part of that. In Sagan's case, I think, you know, you know, you were with him for a good chunk of this, like, you know, a lot of second places. He was like Mr. Second Place for a while. And, you know, when he was an up and comer Neo Pro, that was one thing. But when he was like, a, you know, the guy who was expected to win and coming in second place, that was a huge amount of annoyance. And then he had the Saxo thing where, you know, he had the goofball owner and all that <laughs> nonsense and like putting pressure on him. Yep. Um, so I think he's got for a still a reasonably young guy. Was he 27? I don't uh, think he's 27 now. 26? Oh, well, I think he is 27 27 now. now. But yeah, at that point, yeah, he, he's a kid. He, he's a kid still, even in the sport. I mean, he still has great riding years ahead of him, and but he's got a longer view than I think someone in his position in the past. And, you know, there was a little bit of a dust-up. I don't know if it was Conchalar or somebody said something about the fact that, like, they they took exception to Sagan saying, I'm about the show, I'm not about the wins. Mm -hmm. And... I think it was, Fabian. And, and, and... and, and uh, you know, I talked to Conchalara about that. And, you know, Conchalara, of course, was, you know, super fun to watch win too. And I think he might be selling himself short on that regard. But, like, Sagan's, like, not saying whatever. I don't care. He clearly cares. I mean, he's like, you know, you rode with him. You know yeah, he cares. Yeah. But I think that it's that long view. It's that perspective of not letting people get, you know, dusted out. I mean, you know, we don't have to get into the, all the hairy details, but like he rode through a pretty significant personal situation this tour, mm -hmm. won some big stages, and you know suffered a terrible crash toward the end of the race. And the guy's like still doing like wheelies, mm -hmm. you know, in the bends of like Alpe d'Huez for fans. I mean, it's you know he gets it. He, I guess you know he yes, gets it. Yes, he he would come to the states. Um, I raced with him. I think. I raced with him for four years. I think it was the second year that he came to the States and he loved California. And I yeah. think, not I think, I mean, he he wanted to become an actor. He wanted, he, he looks yeah. at somebody like Arnold Schwarzenegger and he's like, yeah. he's made it in his right. athletic career and he wants to be a showman. Yeah. I think he's come to realize that bike racing is his <laughs> calling. Um, but yes, he's, uh, he understands the show. He's incredibly humanizing. It was funny, you know, it's, it's understood he's going to win the kind of stages and he's going to excel in the kind of stages that he's going to be good at, like the hilly ones that drop the climber or the sprinters and he's going to come down to a sprint and dust them. So it was, I think fans of the sport loved seeing how humanizing it was when he had crashed and when he was suffering like a dog yeah. in the final few stages. Um, One thing that I would love to see is, you know, the Slovakian fame ball side of it because, you know, apparently he gets covered like it's like, you know, he's the Kardashians and yes. plus LeBron James of, you know, yes. uh, of Slovakia. And his personal life is, you know, being picked apart. And that was obviously a cause for his concern during the tour. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think we have a perspective. I mean, I think part of what he loves about America is he can freaking walk down the street here, mm -hmm. you know? 100%. Um, um, I introduced him to uh, maple syrup, I'm proud to say. Although for the wrong reason, well, for the right and wrong reasons, we were in... I hop. I snuck him out at Tour of California. Yeah. He's like, Peter, we're going to go get some pancakes. 
This is when we were on Liquid Gas, where they would meticulously look at everything we ate, and most certainly pancakes and syrup were not on that list. It was like Peter were going for a ride. Um, do you know who Zdeno Chara is? Yeah, sure, of course. He's the S- tall man of the Boston Bruins. Yeah, yes. buddy. Yep. He's six foot and a cyclist. 10, six foot eleven. He's Slovakian. Yeah, he's a he's a friend and uh, fellow countryman of yeah. Peter Sagan. He's on the lineup. Uh, I talked to Andrew Ference, former Boston Bruin. Yeah. Then became Edmonton Oilers captain. Yeah. Cyclist. He introduced me to Zdeno. And as a Bruins fan my whole life, I, when I'm texting Zdeno Chara, like, hey, do you want to go for a bike ride? And he's like, yeah, I'll be back in the States in early September. I was, <laughs> I was over the moon. Um, I got a bunch of emails from people. So the LeBron James thing. Yes, you mentioned that it, was my segue. Uh, but Thank you. But a lot of folks who are in the tall, uh, the, not the tall, like, you know, like, like welded tall bikes, but in the, you know, large frame bike business, we're reaching out and they say, oh, I made a bike for Char. I made a bike for Mark Eaton. I made a bike for Conan O'Brien. No like kidding. we can hook up LeBron. So let me know. Oh, that's brilliant. That, that was the next thing I want to talk about LeBron. Uh, I think, I mean, the pictures we see of him more recently, they're actually the old ones. And I think he's still riding the bike was, the sort of maroon Cannondale, yeah. the lefty. Yeah. Like that's a great Franken bike yeah. machine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. It's you, called a lefty. That's the name of the bike. That's the name of the, the shock. The shock, right. Because that shock has one fork. Right, one fork. On the left yeah. side. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked to LeBron yeah. soon after some uh, political bullying from <laughs> the POTUS. No, no, no. It was before. It was hours before. Oh, actually. no kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my timeline's yeah. whack. Yeah. Um, I had wanted to interview him for a long time, you know, going back to like Miami because he was like doing critical mass rides in Miami and so on, like during the playoffs, which was nuts. That's and like, so cool. And that was just rad. And he was like riding, you know, in Miami, you know, two games. And, you know, I've ridden a good deal around Miami. You probably have at one point or another. I have. You ever go with Tolansky yep, around yep, that yep. area? Um, it's, uh, it's dodgy, but it's real riding country. And there's people who are really good down there. But anyway, um, it didn't work out in Miami and then I would ask and I would ask and I would ask. And then the school news happened. And in the school news, he opened this public school in his hometown of Akron, Ohio was this little, you know, bullet point saying like every kid who goes to this public school is going to get a free bike and a free helmet. And I was like, that is awesome. And let me just try again. Will, you know, LeBron talk about bikes with me and talk about the school, you know, mission with the bikes. And they were like, How's Friday at three? Okay, and 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 you know, so finally, like we did it, and then later in the night, um, the uh, Twitterer in chief uh, took a swing at him mm, for a totally zing. different reason. Yeah, yeah. I don't but, think but, uh, I don't think POTUS rides a bike. No, I don't think so either. But I, I mean, to focus on the bike part of LeBron, I thought the thing that was just so cool about his passion i mean like again it was like the robin williams thing is like flipping a switch it's like lebron james has been asked every single basketball question you could possibly ask him fifty thousand times and can give you a very sort of you know straightforward answer on it he doesn't get asked about like clipless pedals that much or Mm -hmm. get asked about you know his first bike and mongooses and and huffies and like riding in akron with his friends when he was a little kid and he was so great and I think um, answered the question about like why riding in a way that spoke to so many people. I was really taken aback in a positive way by the response of the cycling community, but also people who are just casual riders or thinking about getting back on the bike again, that when LeBron James was sitting there talking about like 
cycling as freedom, cycling as a a literal reminder of what it was like to be a kid with no mm-hmm. purpose at the moment and like being with your friends and just that sort of, you know, that sense memory that getting on a bike can give you to your childhood. It gives people like tingles and uh, it's a real thing. And it is sort of like, you know, when all is said and done, it's why people who you know, or dorks who like bikes like me do it, but people who, you know, reach the highest level of the sport like you do it, did it, you know, you did it for that kind of sensation, I imagine. Absolutely. Uh, I, I recommend everybody looks that article up. I want to say August 1st, but yeah, Wall Street Journal, Jason Gay, LeBron James bikes, that search is going to land you on this article. Right. I mean, he talks about how he gets, he calls them tights, spandex. Yeah. He gets yeah. spandex. He gets he he doesn't ride clipless pedals, but he gets the freedom. Qu- the yeah, quick thing freedom. with that interview, which is that like I heard from a couple of people who thought that it was like somehow like bike snobby to ask LeBron about like clipless pedals, uh, or to ask him about like what his inventory was and say like oh maybe you need a gravel bike, LeBron. Mm-hmm. And like first of all, if you read me, you know that half the time I'm tongue in cheek <laughs> and like I'm the biggest like dork in the world. Like I am so far from like a bike snob elitist, it's comical. But secondly. LeBron was super psyched to talk about clipless pedals because he knows like he had talked to his friends. He had talked to a lot of riders. He had gone on rides where people were like, LeBron, you got to get on clipless pedals. Like it's going to make your life a lot better. And it was on his to-do list. And you know, I wouldn't have talked about it with him. if It wasn't something that he had responded. So, um, compellingly to, so it was not like me looking down from the Mount at LeBron James. I wouldn't dare do that. You know, like I am like, you know, a fart joke wrapped in a human being suit. Like I am not, A snob, okay? Um, I didn't pick up on that, yeah. but that's excellent qualifier there. Yeah. Um, oh, man. you. One of your most well-known pieces is, is that on rules. Rules yeah. of uh, Thanksgiving family football, yeah. which is typical fo- touch football. And then, yeah. you know, you've, you've, you've explored that in some other areas. So, yeah, I mean, the same sort of thing. It's like, hey, what are the rules? But I think they're all said tongue-in-cheek at the end of the day. The rule is go ride your bike. Go well, enjoy the, the com- Right. The community. rules are also like, you know, I think that's uh, like, you know, well-trod ground in cycling, right? Everyone does oh, the God. thing about like, you know, yeah. putting your, sun- your sunglasses on the outside of the helmet straps and blah, 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 blah. But I, one of the things I do like about getting older and slower and fatter is that like, you don't care about any of that stuff as much as you once did. Like I used to remember being like, Oh boy, look at these socks. They're not uh-huh. the right, you know, like You're a centimeter too short. <laughs> right? It's not matching up with my tan line. Um and uh and now it's just like the fact that, you know, I have small kids, the fact that I can just get out the door and inflate the tires uh-huh. is a small miracle. And it does sort of bring me back to the reason of why, you know, I like it. And like I said this in the book, I think, but like with cycling, like, you know, I've had, you know, I've I've had talk therapy. I've had couples therapy. I've had all kinds of like, you know, ways to like, um, you know, improve my life. The bike works 100% of the time. It's undefeated in uh-huh. terms of like a psychological lift. It just makes you feel much better. So that's what, you know, it's all about to me anymore. You know, I'm not the guy who's, you know, scrolling through, you know, competitive cyclist. Although I like competitive cyclists. I couldn't agree more. And And it's interesting that you talk about the the various therapies because your wife got you into the sport of cycling. Yeah, she did. She was the person who was like, and still is the person who will knock off the hundred mile ride. She's done the triple bypass. She's the real cyclist. I'm just the noob, still the noob. Uh-huh. Um, she can descend a hell of a lot better than I can. Yeah. She can do mostly everything better than I can. 
Oh. Can I ask you another question? Please. My what? wife's a ripper, too. I need to throw that out there. We should I all like go that. for a bike ride. Is the that, four of us. Two tandems. <laughs> okay, go on. Maybe we can get one of those eight-seaters like that that go around yeah. Times Square. Um, I was noticing on my most recent ride uh, out of town here that everyone is dressed so nicely in cycling. Cycling clothes, and I know you, you work with, was it Velocio? Velocio. Velocio. Yep, yep. Those are really nice. Everyone has really nice clothes. You don't see people in the crazy like Pink Floyd shirt or like the banana color. I mean, like, like everyone. They're still looks, out there. Are they? Oh, don't worry. They're I, still I mean, there. Maybe it's a New York thing, but I'm like, man, it's like a freaking fashion show out here. Everyone looks like they're like going to like a Monte Carlo wedding yeah. or something like that. Everyone looks great. You know, well, a lot the, of black and pink and yada, yada. Sure. The two things that my, my retirement from formal bike racing coincided with very, very well were the advent of gravel and the whole industry getting behind it, and that's super fun. And uh, uh, aesthetics, because literally my final year of racing, I'm like, am I supposed to keep wearing this jersey? <laughs> like, do I have to ask the team for a couple extra jerseys so I have something to wear? Got teamed up with Velocio. Yes, the aesthetics are are wonderful. The clothes are comfortable, and it's awesome. Okay, now we're getting the boot, because yeah, we're supposed to get the boot. Real real journals we're are going to come in. We're going to do here. this. we got 30 seconds or less. Okay. It's like I'm on NPR or something. Yeah. So you're a... Writer, you're a pod video caster. You've written a book. You're a social media maven. But when you got into this whole thing in journalism, you were a writer. And similarly, you know, I'm, I'm now taking to podcasting to be to be a chameleon in this in this postmodern era yeah. when I was purely just a bike racer. What what's the future of media? Is it because you know you, <laughs> I realize that's an enormous question. Where like how how do you do your writing? How do you want to do your writing? Do you want to do it on social media? Do you want the world to swing back towards purely writing paper? Um, you know, I have the benefit of having lived, lived, my, my, <laughs> lived my entire media career um, with people saying like the business is dying. So we're now like 20 some odd years into my career and, you know, the media business has not died. It's, you know, there's certainly been elements of it that have gone away, but there are a whole new worlds that have perked up and podcasting is one of them. And I feel like... At the end of the day, what this stuff is, is storytelling, right? You know, it's like people reading or watching or listening to someone tell something interesting about themselves or their lives or their perspective on the world. And I think part of the reason why podcasting has taken off as a form is that there's an intimacy to it. Um, and also, frankly, there's just the portability to it. People can just like, you know, they can listen to it when they want to listen to it. It's not like you have to come in at four o'clock and blah, blah, blah. And this mm -hmm. is the only time you're going to be able to hear this. And if you don't, you're going to miss it for life. Um, and so I think that, you know, the platforms are changing. Um, I just think that sort of that value is still the central thing that drives um, what people want to get out of news and media. And I always get a kick out of, you know, there have been any number of, you know, social media mavens and, and uh, forecasters and new media gurus who come forward and, you know, say, this is going to be the next thing and this is going to be the next thing. And they're usually wrong. But the thing that they always come back and hit upon is like, well, we've done, we've studied, we've studied everything. And Ted, you know what people want to listen to is interesting stories. I mean, it's like, no shit. Like, they knew that 150 years ago when there were 10 newspapers in town. Like, it hasn't changed. Like, the way that people are getting the information and processing it is different. Um, and, and it's going to be some hard pain for, you know, some of the more traditional legacy brands. But... I don't think the business is any different in terms of what you're trying to get. I mean, do it with integrity 
and make it fun and make it interesting to people, I think there's always going to be a place for it. How's that? It was like more than 30 seconds. That's 34 seconds. I told you I'm watch. slow. I no, told you I'm very slow. You nailed it. Um, well, the fact that they have flashed the lights on us, it yeah. means it's time to leave. Um, yeah. Storyteller, cyclist, Jason Gay, that was exceptionally well said. Thank you for your time. Uh, I still want to go for that bike ride. Awesome. Um, let's, let's hang out again. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you. Thank you.